turn, uh, turn your Bibles to Matthew 14. Matthew chapter 14. Today we're going to continue preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And today we find ourselves at another miracle. Matthew 14, verse 22. One very familiar about Jesus walking on water. But like last week, Dustin said... The story was about bread, but it wasn't about bread. This week, the story is about water, but it's not about water. If I had to sum up what it was about in one sentence, it'd be the very last line of our text, verse 33. It says, truly, Jesus is the Son of God. This is, this is a story about the identity and the glory of of this man from Nazareth, that he is the Son of God, and it's simultaneously about faith, about faith, whether you believe that or not, is we're going to see a handful of men graciously experience almost the same miracle for the second time, and we see their response goes from a question what kind of man is this? To a confession. Truly you are the son of God. And that's exactly why this story has been recorded in scripture for us. That's exactly what it's supposed to do. Is to cause us to join into that great confession about Jesus. And I pray that happens today. That that would radically impact all of our lives in every way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that you are the Son of God. You and you alone are the Son of God. You are Lord of heaven and earth and sky and sea. And as your people, we come to you today. I, I ask you, Lord, that you would do what you did here in this text, that you would reveal your glory to sinful men and women, that we might see you greater than we see you today. I pray that you would call those that are in darkness out of darkness, and I pray you would build the faith of your church through the preaching of your word. Lord, please bless the preaching of your word. Help me, Lord, help us, Lord, please, in Jesus' name, amen. Before I even start, I want to, it's interesting, I never know exactly how I would lay out a sermon until I, I get to it, and this, this one I want to do a little differently. I want us to see there's like six different scenes, this is all one big setting, one big day it seems like here, but there's six different scenes. And I just want to take each scene one at a time. And as we look at each of these six scenes, I want us to look at the action that goes on, you know, one or two or three little uh, moments of action in each scene. And I don't want us to ask three questions. Like, just what do we see, first of all? What's going on in the story, in the history? What's going on? What is that showing us? And really important. What can we today, 2,000 years later, learn from what we see in the text? And so that's kind of the, the pattern. But first I want to set the stage with this, that what we're seeing here is happening at the end of a very long, hard day for Jesus. This is like... Many of the days that we see, probably most of the days that we see in the life of Jesus in his earthly ministry. But these, every one of these real life, real historical accounts actually 
expose something to us. We, we can study them and meditate them and discover the, the heart of Jesus, the nature of Jesus Christ, and the glory and the identity of who he is. This is exactly what, what's going on. And so what we see here is the end of a day, a long, hard day. But how does that day begin? If you remember from last week, it began with bad news. If you look up uh, above the Jesus feeds the 5,000, we see that Jesus has received bad news about John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been beheaded, and John's disciples have come to Jesus and told him the news. And see in verse 13, when he hears this, when he heard this, he withdrew. So Jesus is desiring to withdraw to a desolate place. And Mark, the, the parallel account in Mark, tells us that this is happening at the same time around when the mission, uh, the, his disciples have come back from their missionary journey. And so these things are colliding at one time. And he seeks to go and withdraw to a desolate place, to, a desolate place to give his disciples rest, Mark says. And here we see for his own benefit to pray. He's seeking time alone from the crowds. But we see quickly that the crowds beat Jesus to the desolate place. And all of a sudden his time alone is interrupted. But as Dustin taught last week, Jesus doesn't respond with frustration, but he responds with compassion and he serves the crowds before he serves himself. He heals them all. He feeds them all. They're full and satisfied, it says at the end, verse 20. But notice that the scene that we're about to get into in verse 22 happens immediately. You see the first word of verse 22, immediately. What we're about to read takes place on the same day, right after everybody eats. Notice in verse 15, right before they sit down to eat, it said, it's evening time. And that word, like, like our word evening, that word means uh, any time towards the end of the day to nightfall. It's a pretty good range of, of time. And so we see as they sit down, the end of the day is drawing near. But then in verse 23, we see the same word used again, says evening has come now and Jesus is finally alone. And I take that to mean that now it's dark. It's nightfall at the end of this long day when Jesus finally gets alone. So right here at the first scene, I want you to get in your mind that it's starting to get dark. At the end of a long day for Jesus. First scene, Jesus sends everybody away. Verse 22. It says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And so, what do we see? We see that Jesus is actually compelling his disciples to leave and to go on before him. That word made, where it says Jesus made them leave, man, that's a strong word. Probably better translated, he compelled them. It's a really forceful, like you need to go, you need to, you need to get out of here. And so why does he do that? Like why does he make them leave in such a hurried way? If you read the parallel account in John, you see it's because there's almost a messianic uprising going on. They liked the bread that they just received. John chapter 6 is all about the bread of life. These people chased Jesus even further on the very next day. But here we learn in John that they are going to make him king. They want to force him to be their king. And that's not the plan. Jesus Kingship is not a political one. And so what, do we, what is this uh, teaching us? What is this showing us? First, it's showing us that the devil continues to tempt Jesus and his disciples. 
Because if you remember back in the wilderness, Satan did this directly to Jesus, promised him the kingdom, the kingdoms of the world, if he would just bow his knee to the devil. And now we see the crowd just kind of promoting the same thing, a political kingdom, a worldly kingdom, agents, I would say, of the devil himself. And Jesus wants to guard his disciples from that. I mean, if you read the Gospels, you, you see they are prone to that already. We, Jesus starts to explain it about he's going to have to go and be crucified and die. And Peter pulls him aside and tries to correct his theology. Not you, Lord. And so Jesus is guarding their faith, moving them away from this messianic uprising. He wants them to have no part in that. Instead, he's moving them away in order to build their faith rightly. To show his glory as the Son of God and the Christ. So he wants them to understand rightly, to know him truly, and to believe. And then one other reason why he's sending everybody away. He wants to pray. He really wants to pray. Now, what do we learn? What can we learn from this? That temptation abounds. Temptation abounds from every side. And we need to flee temptation. And that the faith of our brothers and sisters in Christ is important. And we need to help them. We need to be a means of grace to one another. To guard each other's faith and to encourage one another and point each other to Christ and build each other up in the faith. This is, this is what Jesus is doing. And so he sends the disciples away and he dismisses the crowds by himself. And so he's, he's letting them go while he's settling everybody down and dismissing them and dispersing this crowd. But we learn that most of them stay in the area. Because the next day when they find Jesus gone, they all jump in boats and go to the other side, pursuing Jesus yet again. And so what does this show us? Man, Jesus never hardly had a moment alone. At least not while the world was awake. And this shows us, man, that the world desperately needs Jesus. But they don't really know why. They thought it was to, to, to have a king that would provide them bread. But they need more. The world needs more. They need the Jesus who is the son of God. The one who died for sinners. That's who they need. And they don't even know. They are really like sheep without a shepherd. And so scene number two. We see Jesus, after he's dismissed the crowds, now he withdraws to praise. Look at verse 23. It says, after Jesus had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. And so what we see here is Jesus... Picking up where he, what he had planned to do earlier in the day. He heard the news about John. And he wanted to withdraw to a desolate place to pray. We see him uh, resuming that previously interrupted withdrawal. What do we see? What does it show us about Christ? One, it shows us that, man, he had a deep desire to be alone in prayer with his father. Man, we can't, even, we can't even begin to imagine this triune bond and desire for a communion that exists between the Father and the Son. That's always existed between the Father and the Son. And Jesus longs for that. This is why you see this pattern of prayer. But you also see Jesus really needs this. In his humanity... Jesus really needs to be alone with his Father. I mean, we're, we're seeing the good shepherd really needing his own soul restored and to be led on for righteousness' sake. 
We see Jesus weak and tired, in need of strengthening. We see Jesus most likely grieving the loss of John the Baptist, in need now of comfort from the Father of mercies, the Father of all comfort. Jesus needs comfort. And what can we learn from knowing that is that if the God-man needs all that, if the Son of God needs alone time with God, how much more do we? I mean, the other thing I want you to see here is there's going to be many distractions that's going to pull you away from this alone time, but you need to be like Christ and get right back to it. Distracted, fine, but not eliminated. Just because you're distracted doesn't mean that when everybody settles down, when all the distractions go away, even if it's two in the morning, draw near. You need it. We also see here Jesus prays alone all night. All night. He's finally alone. It's dark. Man, just imagine. Man, just imagine this scene. It's dark. It's moonlight. It's quiet for the very first time all day. And Jesus is making his way up this mountain, up this hill. And all you hear is like crunching of gravel as he's going up. By himself. You think he's praying already? Man, I know he is. What would you give to witness that? To be there like a fly on the wall. Jesus goes up alone at night to commune with his heavenly father. Does he even sleep? He prays all night. It's probably about 9 o'clock at night when he's, when he's heading up. and He doesn't leave and go find his disciples to the fourth watch of the night, it says. That's somewhere between 3 and 6 in the morning. That's near dawn. So for 6, 7, 8, 9 hours, he's in prayer. And in verse 34, we, we kind of get the hint, like the rest of the Gospels show us, that man, it picks up right where it left off the next day. When does he even rest? How does he get strength? night in prayer. This is what Jesus' life was like. This, this is Jesus' prayer life. And man, I commend a study of that. We see little glimpses of it all throughout the Gospels of how he would withdraw, climb up a mountain by himself and spend all night in prayer. We also see that the fact that he stays all night shows us, man, he's got a lot to pray about. He's got a lot to pray about. He's got to pray for himself, for his own strength, wisdom, comfort, resolve to persevere, to keep going. He's praying for his mission. He's praying for the kingdom. He's praying like he taught us to pray. He's praying for his disciples. He's praying for the crowds. He's praying for his enemies. Who knows? We just get a few glimpses of his prayer life, but we can see some of those things. Man, who, who can imagine the things that he calls out to God for? Man, there's nobody that's ever communed with God like the Son of God on earth. You know, it said that Moses used to speak to God face to face like a friend. Man, that's nothing. That's nothing compared to the Son of God incarnate. Communing with his Father in heaven all night long. No prayer time could ever compare to that. What do we, what do we learn? What should we take away from seeing that? Well, the first thing, the most important thing is, man, we need help. We need help to pray like that. 
to come anywhere close to praying like the Son of God. We need help from heaven. Don't you want to improve your prayer life? Don't you want to be more like this? You need to pray. Pray, God, fix my prayer life. Fix it. Change it. Improve it. Now, this is all going on. This scene on the mountain is going on while his disciples are out in the middle of the, uh, middle of the Sea of Galilee. And so you can see that in the word but in verse 24. So you got Jesus alone praying, but the boat. And don't forget, meanwhile, back at the ranch, meanwhile, here in the boat, the disciples have spent all night in another place. It says, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And so here we go again. Deja vu. Another storm on the Sea of Galilee. Another windstorm the disciples are caught up in. What is this showing us? It shows us again that Jesus controls the wind. You've got to remember, Jesus is the one who directs the wind. He's the one who directs his disciples. He's the one who sent them into the boat. Just like last time. Get in the boat without saying there's a storm coming. Then why is this repeating? Because they don't understand. Why does Jesus repeat the bread miracle here in a couple of chapters? Because they don't understand. Why does he repeat and, and explain these parables to them over and over again? Why? Because they don't understand. The disciples have hard, unbelieving hearts. You say, wait a minute, hey, how do you figure that? Well, when he does the bread miracle again, when he feeds the 4,000 this next time, he tells them that. He says, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have you eyes and you do not see? You got ears and you don't hear, you don't remember, you don't understand what you're seeing? That may sound hard, but guess what? They have slow, they're slow to believe. They have hard hearts. And guess what? Jesus is doing these things not to be hard, but because he wants them to understand. He wants them to understand. He wants us to understand. This is why all this is happening. Jesus is patiently, patiently and graciously building faith. In these disciples, in this room, all throughout history, from these repeated things to the slow of heart. That's us, by the way. Hard, slow hearts, but the Lord is patient. And he orders our steps to teach us sometimes. And this is exactly what's going on here. Jesus has ordered their steps to show them more of himself. Man, this should make us desire to make more use of his grace. To take more responsibility with every crumb that Jesus will give us. Every lesson he teaches us in providence. Every time the word is preached. Every time. We need to remember Judas is in this boat. Judas is getting the same gracious repetition, patient teaching, patient revelation like nobody's ever seen. And yet he's the devil. And so here they are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, painfully making progress. A rowing against the wind. Striving against the wind. Mark says they were making headway painfully. Painfully. It's because they're beating the windward. And I know nobody knows what that means probably. They are beating the windward. That is a sailing term. Whenever you try to go upwind. It ain't fun. It ain't fun. 
because you're beating against the waves. You're not making much progress. You're having to tack back and forth, and they're rowing against the wind, against the waves, against the wind. It'd be much more fun if they'd turn around and go the other way. Downhill, wind at your back, riding the waves gently. It's not what's going on here. Man, they've been going six, seven, eight hours, and they've only gone three miles. And they're rowing like crazy. What does this show us? What does this show us right here? If you, if you put all the pieces together, you got Jesus, the God-man, praying for himself and interceding for the disciples while he's upholding the universe by the word of his power, especially this wind that's got them stalled and making painful headway. This is the glory of Christ and accomplishing his purposes while being the God-man in full humanity, weak and needing comfort and strength from his God. See all of that, just this little sliver, glory of Christ per permeates these pages, brothers, sisters. What do we learn from that? Jesus hadn't changed. God is with us always, even when everything seems against us. He knows. God knows. He's ordaining it. He's blowing the wind. You trying to go there, he's blowing this way while he intercedes for you, for your good and his glory. Scene change. Scene number four, Jesus actually walks on water. Verse 25, it says, In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They said, It's a ghost. They cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And so what do we see? We see Jesus walking on the water out to his disciples in the fourth watch of the night. So now we've got six, eight, nine hours of prayer, six, seven, eight, nine hours of beating against the wind. They make it three and a half miles. Mark says that Jesus saw them out there struggling in the middle of the night, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And he starts to walk out to them on the water. He actually walks on top of the water. He, 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 he doesn't take a boat, although we find out later there's plenty of boats around because all the crowds jumping boats. So it's not that they, he looks around, it's not a boat. He's doing this on purpose. Walking now revived in prayer on a mission. Jesus starts walking on water. And this is a staggering miracle. 2,000 years later, this is like a figure of speech that everybody says, man, he he must think he can walk on water. Don't let it be too familiar. This is showing us that there are times when Jesus lets his people struggle. But they will not perish. It also shows gloriously that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth and quantum physics. I mean, I don't think we comprehend the, the reach that the Creator has. Don't, man, don't let the familiarity of this story dull it for you. Oh yeah, that's Jesus walking on water. I heard that story. Man, we're slow of heart. 
Think about it. How in the world, how in the world does this happen? I mean, does Jesus somehow change his density to be less than water? So he can walk on it? Does he somehow coagulate or stiffen up the water under each step as he goes? Has he suspended gravity just for himself, just for a moment as he walks? Some sort of subatomic repulsion? Like, what's he doing? I have no idea. I have no idea, but I thought I'd throw out some silly suggestions. But the uncreated one, we sing that song. The one who wrote the laws of space and time can do whatsoever he pleases with his molecules. This is the one who made iron float in 2 Kings. The one who made the sun stop all day in Joshua. Splitting seas, pushing back rivers. This is the one who calls into existence things that don't exist. What a concept. You can't, you, you can't explain it because you don't know what nothing is. You don't know what, how do you call something out of nothing? We don't even know what nothing is. This, this one here, it's walking on water, created the water. He created H2O before there was an H, before there was a 2, before there was an O. And it's serving him right now. So what do we learn from this? First of all, they're out there struggling, but he comes. They're not too far. They're not out of reach. They hadn't been there too long. Just right. Wait for the Lord. That's lesson number one. Wait for the Lord. He will show up, even in the fourth watch. I pick at my wife about a southern gospel song about Lazarus. The chorus goes, when he's four days late, he's right on time. That's, that, can, that can be true about only one person, the Son of God. Wait for him. The second thing you learn from this is all things serve him. All things serve the one seated on the throne of grace. Man, get that. When you need mercy and grace to help in time of need, this is the one seated on the throne of grace that says, come. All things serve him. All your circumstances serve him. Come. Come to him with hearts filled with faith, confidence. Now, here comes Jesus. Disciples see him, and they are terrified. They cry out in fear. And I want you to realize what we're seeing here is that Jesus is doing this on purpose. Jesus has purposely passed before them. This is exactly what Mark says. He says, Jesus meant to pass by them. He, in, he intends to do this. He's walking out here on the water to be seen by them on purpose. And they're terrified when they do see him. They think it's a ghost. Literally, the word is phantom. That's what they think. It's bad theology. And for a sailor, faithless, superstitious sailor, this would be a bad omen, especially in this storm, that a phantom's now hovering around. But this shows us something that Jesus intends to show them something. Jesus intends to show them his glory on purpose for the sake of of their faith that they would believe. Moses told God, asked God, show me your glory. And Jesus is passing before his disciples in a display of glory like they've 
never seen. Why? So they might truly confess that Jesus truly is the Son of God. It works. It works. And what we learn from this is what I talk about a lot. What we preach about a lot here is that seeing the glory of Christ builds faith. It builds faith. This is how faith begins. This is how faith matures. This is how Jesus saves. This is how Jesus sanctifies. Behold the glory of Christ. He's doing this for us. He's passing before us right now. Don't be dull of this miracle. And what do we see him do now that they're terrified? He's, he seeks to calm them immediately. He wants to calm them. He does it by identifying himself. They cry out in fear and he says immediately, says immediately, he says, take heart. Don't be afraid. It is I. Now, again, what's he showing here? What's he showing? He's showing us that he's Yahweh. Yahweh in the flesh. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. That little phrase, it is I, is literally a, an echo of the I am. The great I am. The divine covenant name of God. Now, the disciples probably don't get that. They, they probably don't realize that in the moment. But you can tell in their writings later on how they see that Jesus was doing this, not only in word, but in deed. He's showing himself to be that. See, they hear, take heart, it's I. Oh, no, Jesus, Jesus. But he's saying, take heart, I am. I am is with you. Take heart, God is with you. I am Emmanuel. That's who I am. And he's just, he's not just saying it, he's showing it. He's demonstrating it in all kinds of ways. This is the one. Who, who else is the one who is mightier than the waves of the sea? Yahweh. Who is the one who treads on the waves of the sea and makes his paths through the great waters, yet his footprints are unseen. Yahweh. I'm just quoting Old Testament text. Describing God. Who is the one who stretches out his hand and rescues from the waters? Who? Yahweh. Who is the one who rules the raging sea and calms the surging waves, the one who brings forth the wind. Yahweh. Take heart. Don't, don't be afraid. It is I. I am He. God is with you. And what do we learn from that? I'm going to beat you over a hammer with this. Be over the head with a hammer with this. This is what you take away. Jesus is God. Like, really? Our Savior, Dustin said it this morning. That God is our God. Jesus, our Savior, the one who died for us, is God. And so guess what else? Fear not. Seriously, fear not. You should, you should look at that and be like, what, what the heck? Why would I ever fear anything? If God is with us, who or what can be against us? Not the wind. Fifth scene, we see Peter walking on water. Verse 28. Peter answered Jesus, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. And came to Jesus. But. When Peter saw the wind. He was afraid. And beginning to sink. He cried out. Lord save me. 
And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of Peter, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? So what we see here, we see Peter now asking Jesus to command him to do the same thing, to walk on the water. What does this show? It shows Peter's grown a little bit in the faith. Remember the last storm wasn't like this at all. They're like shaking Jesus, waking him up. Lord, we're perishing. Like now he's ready to step out of the boat. Little improvement. A little more confidence. Maybe too much. Because I think what we see here is a little more uh, overconfidence from that missionary journey. You know, the one they've just gotten back from where they had all this power. All this power in Jesus' name and maybe he's a little over eager, a little too zealous here to repeat, duplicate Jesus' miracle. And so he says, command me to come to you walking on the water. Now what do we learn from this? Two things. Jesus does, does want us to know his power. But he wants us to know our weakness. At the same time. Time. Man, I love this truth. You see it in, in Scripture. I, I, I know I've told many of you this before. This simple phrase, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my strength. I don't have any other strength. This is the Christian life. The Christian life is one of real power. I don't, I don't want us to deny that at this church. Real power. Power to believe. and Power to kill sin, power to obey, power against adversity, and power to persevere. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. That's true. His power. Jesus wants us to know His power. And we do. But it ain't ours. And man, don't we? Don't we think that? As soon as we start thinking that Jesus wants us to know our weakness again. Peter's about to be quickly reminded of his total insufficiency. And we get the same reminder over and over again. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Slow to heart. Right when, tell me if this is true. Not asking for an amen, but Tell me if this is true. Right when we start foolishly thinking, I got this, is when the Lord reminds us, no, you don't. His divine power. All this is to build up our faith, build up our trust in Him, not ourselves. Like, to know, to really know, and to really experience his power made perfect in our weakness. To be made sufficient while knowing our sufficiency is from him. This helps line us up with reality. And it trains us to do what? To keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Not ourselves. And not our circumstances. And this is the problem that Peter encounters in just a second. But first, he actually walks on water. He asks, and Jesus says, come on. And Peter walks on water. He actually walks on water. What does this show? This shows something really important. A man can walk on water if Jesus says so. Man, Jesus is demonstrating another dimension of power and authority. It's one thing that Jesus can, as God in the flesh, can walk on water himself. But now he's actually bestowing that power on somebody else. And so not only does Jesus have the power and authority to do miraculous things that only God can do. Here we see Jesus extend that power to anybody he pleases, whenever he pleases. You remember when Nicodemus came 
to Jesus by night, and he said, Rabbi, we, man, we know that you are a teacher come from God because nobody can do the signs that you're doing unless God is with him. You're right. Hey, Nicodemus, what would you say about Peter right now? Nobody. Nobody can do things like this unless God is with him. God is with him. Right there. Right there with him leaving footprints on the top of the Sea of Galilee. And so what do we learn from this? A single word from Jesus is all we need. One word. Look at, look at the text. Look at verse 29. How many words did Jesus give? One. Come. Jesus asked, I mean, Peter asked, and Jesus says, Come. One word, and Peter's doing the impossible. One word, and all of a sudden, it's no longer striving against the wind. It's walking on water. Walking on water. This is, look, this is all we need is one word from Jesus. And let me tell you something. Jesus says, come. And how many times and how many ways does the Son of God have to tell us these things? The same things. Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. I will give you rest. He says, come, draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. A single word from Jesus is all we need. Why don't we ask him for that? Give me a word. Help me right now. Say, say something, it'll change. Say something, you'll help me. Whisper one word on my behalf, Lord. Because here's the other thing. If you get that, the other thing is this. We can do anything, we can do everything that Jesus calls us to do. Think about that. If Jesus says come, you can come. If Jesus says walk on water, you're going to walk on water. If Jesus says go, go to the nations. If he says go, he will be with you. If he says do this or do that for my name's sake, his yoke will be easy. If he says, okay, here, I need you to bear this burden, his burden's going to be light. Because he says so. Get that. Whatever Jesus calls you to, you can do it. You can't do anything he doesn't call you to. Peter sinks. He looks away and he sinks. He looks, he takes his eyes off Christ and he looks at the wind and he starts to drown. He starts to drown. He starts out on the right foot. Takes a couple of steps, eyes fixed on Jesus. But look at verse 30. It says, but. You see that shift? Shift and focus away from Christ now onto his surrounding circumstances. It says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And it says he immediately began to sink. Literally, he began to submerge. He was drowning. And he cries out. Lord, save me. And here we go. Deja vu again. From that previous little faith, big storm episode in chapter 8. And the only thing that changed was where his eyes went. That was it. The only thing that changed. Nothing else changed. Jesus is standing there, wind and waves everything. Peter steps out. He's walking towards Jesus. And then his eyes go boom and he drowns. What does that show? It shows us that genuine faith is, a, is pictured by or portrayed by looking to Christ. Looking to Christ. This is a phrase. We, we use it all the time. and it's, it's synonymous with faith. If you know the famous story about C.H. Spurgeon, how he was saved, how he was converted, he ducks into a little church in the snowstorm and the pre regular preacher's not there and this 
not so good, not so much a preacher, is preaching from Isaiah 45. And he just keeps repeating over and over and over again. Uh, Look unto me and be saved. That's all he says. And Spurgeon did. He looked to Christ. And the rest is history. So to, to look to Christ means to trust him. To really trust him. To have faith in him. To believe in him. To rest in him. To hope in him. And that's what's portrayed here literally. Literally. So literally when Peter looks at Jesus, he's walking on water. When he looks away, he drowns. It's as simple as that. And this is meant to show us something. It's meant to show us this. That power from Christ is mediated through faith. Mediated through faith. Just go read the, the hall of faith. Hebrews 11. Over and over and over again. People demonstrating power and perseverance and craziest things. And it always says, by faith. By faith. Every apostolic miracle was a work of faith. Every salvation ever was, was the power of God through faith. Every little degree of sanctification we get is through faith. And if you're going to miraculously persevere through the trials and temptations of this world, you're going to need power from Christ through faith. What do we learn? Hopefully nothing new. Apart from Christ, we really can do nothing. But man, be warned how quickly things change. Faith can turn to fear like that. You see it? You see it happen here? We need to be warned by this. We walk by faith, not by sight. But man, the things we see can sure wreck our world in a moment, in an instant. Circumstances coming at us all the time that can quickly divert our eyes away from Christ and onto ourselves, onto our circumstances. And I'm here to tell you, see it in the text, looking only at your circumstances is a recipe for disaster. You'll drown. We got to remember who Christ is. We got to remember that he's the one who orders our steps. He's the one who reigns over providence. He is the one who ordains these circumstances for our good. The other thing you need to learn here is one step's not enough. You got to go all the way. We got to persevere to the end. We got to look to Christ to the end. We've got to hold that original confidence to the end. It's not good enough to say, yo, I believed one time. I remember back when I believed. You got to keep on believing. You got to keep on trusting. Saving faith actually doesn't stop, it just grows. It doesn't uh, grow weaker, it grows stronger. So you got to set your eyes. Fix your eyes. Keep your eyes on Christ to the end. And then we'll see him and be like him fully. So when you find yourself faithless, when you find yourself one of the ones with little faith, what do you need to do? Do what Peter did. Cry out to the Lord to save you. And I'm talking to everybody in here. When you find yourself faithless, cry out to the Lord, please save me, help me. If you turn away, turn back. If you feel a lack of faith, cry out. If you Don't drown. Reach out your hand. He'll grab you. Lift up your voice to Jesus He will rescue you. This is what we see. Peter does just that. He messed up. He was faithless for a moment. 
Peter cries out and immediately Jesus grabs hold of him. Can you imagine the strength Peter felt right then when, when the Son of God walking on water grabs him and holds him up? Man, this shows something awesome that Jesus never, never ignores the cries of desperation from his disciples. Never. No delay. Boom. Latch on. Peter cries. Jesus latches on. Jesus will not let one of his own be lost. Despite little faith. Despite weak faith. Despite momentary lapse of reason. He will not let one of his own perish. Man, I think it's awesome. The very next day. After he does this with Peter, the very next day in John 6, he's saying, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing. I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Peter's like, amen. And a little later in John 10, no one will snatch them from my hand. Peter's like, amen. Let me tell you something about Peter. I mean, I don't know this for sure. This is speculation. But I bet you Peter never read the Psalms the same again. Imagine he's, this morning devotional, he's, well, rolling out the scroll or whatever. Pocket scroll, I don't know. He hits Psalm 144.7. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters. Psalm 69, save me, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink. There's no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. I am weary with my crying out. The Lord sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Like Peter knew that like in a literal sense and in a spiritual sense. What do we learn? Jesus is going to save us. Jesus is going to save us. And Jesus will hold us fast. Jesus will hold us fast. I know you love that song. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. I bet you Peter would like that song right there. But as he grabs Peter, Peter gets a rebuke. He takes hold of him and says, why did you doubt? Just like last time. Oh ye of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter's faith has improved, but it's still deficient. He went from Faith to fear, from confidence to doubt, and Jesus rebukes him for it. Rebukes him for it, right in the middle of a drowning episode. Why does he do that? Because he loves him. Jesus loves Peter. And he's like, come on, Jesus. The man's drowning. Cut him some slack. Don't be so harsh, especially in the moment. But you don't get it. That's just it. He's drowning. This is serious. Jesus loves Peter. He does not want Peter to perish. He wants him to trust him. That's why he rebukes him. Peter, Jesus wants Peter to trust him more. The rebuke is necessary. The rebuke is important. The rebuke is for his eternal good. And here's what we can take away from this. Is like a couple of things. One is fear and faith don't go together. They are opposed to one another. When Jesus says doubt, that word sort of literally, literally means duplicate. It's like having two thoughts being pulled two different directions. It means to be double-minded. Don't be double-minded. Don't doubt. Look, you cannot be full of faith and full of fear at the same time. You can't believe that Jesus is the loving, merciful, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sovereign Son of God who died for you 
and worry about that momentary light affliction. Here's the other thing you learn. That genuine faith is more than just believing facts about Jesus. It's about trust. It's not just, yeah, I believe Jesus is real. I'm going to heaven. No, it's about a wholehearted trust. Do you trust him? Is Jesus your rock? Is he your hope? Is he your shield? Is he your shepherd? Are you resting in Christ? Do you trust him with your whole heart when all around you gives way? Biblical rebukes are good. Good for Christians. Last scene. Verse 32. It says, when Jesus and Peter, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And so you see, as soon as Peter and Jesus get into the boat, the wind stops completely. Just like in chapter 8. We also learn from the Gospel of John that the boat immediately was at land. It's like these two miracles. You like close your eyes and open your eyes and the wind's gone and you're back at land. And so we see here again that Jesus controls the wind and the wave and that Jesus' glory revealing, faith building exercise is over. Glory revealed, faith improved, mission accomplished, and it's over. What do we learn? When the Lord draws near, there is supernatural peace. When the Lord draws near, there is supernatural peace. And just see this happen right here. These guys are terrified. They're scared of the storm. They're they're striving painfully against the wind. Peter's about to drown. They've been spooked by a ghost. The situation is frantic. They're filled with fear. And all of a sudden, now they're glad that Jesus gets in the boat, John says. Peace be still. Weather's great. In the heart, in the mind, in the weather, all is well. Because God is a God of peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The Holy Spirit bears fruit of peace. When the Lord of peace is with you, the peace of the Lord will be with you. And notice that these God-wrought trials work. They accomplish their purpose. When you are tried in the furnace, you will either prove to be a Christian or you will walk away from the faith. But notice here what happens. Everybody in the boat worships Jesus. It says, verse 33, those in the boat worshiped him. It doesn't mean they started singing Chris Tomlin songs. It means, literally, it means that like a dog licking the hand, bowing down, prostrate on the ground in reverence to Jesus. This is what they're doing. They worship Jesus. Jesus, and they all confess Jesus as the Son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. It's not just a big deal for the disciples in the moment. It's a big deal in Matthew's Gospel. So far, this is the first time a human has confessed Jesus as the Son of God. We see the first confession is from God Himself. Jesus' baptism, the Father thundering from heaven, this is my beloved Son. And then we see the devil questioning it. Are you the Son of God? And then we see the demons bowing. What would you do? What are you having to do with us, O Son of God? Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God, but now this is the first recorded confession by the disciples. In Matthew. And so notice here how their perception of Jesus leaps from marvel to worship. And how they answer their own question from the last storm. What kind of man is this? No, he's truly the son of God now. That's what we know. They are coming to know 
who Jesus really is, the Son of God. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God? Because, man, if you do, it changes everything. It really does change everything. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you will worship him. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you will trust him. And if you believe all that, you have eternal life. You have eternal life in his name. This is what this book teaches. That Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world to bear the sins of sinners like you and me. And, and he came righteous, slaughtered for our sins. Raised from the dead. Ascended on high. Seated now. Ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Coming back soon to judge the world in righteousness. Do you believe that? If you do, trust him. If you don't, say, Lord, save me. Like Peter did. Let's pray. Lord, again, we confess you truly are the son of God. Your, your majesty uh, boggles our mind if we just give it a minute's thought of who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for revealing your glory to us. Reveal it more and more that we may truly trust you through every momentary light affliction that we would believe and hold on to the rock as you hold us fast. You will not let one, not let one be lost. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.